Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. Today we have on Chris Jimenez, game planning coach for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and Michael McCarthy, minor league pitching coach for the Minnesota Twins. In parts of 10 seasons, Chris appeared in 386 Major League games and tallied 1,067 plate appearances between the Indians, Twins, Mariners, Rays, Rangers, and Cubs. While the bulk of Jimenez's work came behind the plate, he was versatile enough to spend time at first base, in the outfield, and more briefly, at third base. Beyond that, Chris also took the ball for 11 relief appearances in his career. Mike went from mowing lawns, dragging infields, and quote, just trying to be a part of Cal State Bakerfield's first baseball team to being a 14th round selection by the Boston Red Sox in the 2011 Major League Draft. He spent parts of three seasons in AAA. His final season came in 2016 before making the jump to coaching. On the show, we dive deep into the pitcher-catcher relationship. We discuss how we can break down data for players into a tool that is most relevant for them, and we go over game planning and in-dugout conversations. We dive deep into what truly makes a great coach, and you're going to love this episode with Michael McCarthy and Chris Jimenez. Chris and Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, obviously today's uh, unofficial sponsor is Jocko Willink, since you guys both have uh, <laughs> on right. Jocko stuff. So officially unofficial. Uh, thank you, Jocko. I appreciate the time and thank you for, for sending me a shirt since I didn't get one and I didn't get the memo. But uh, Chris, we'll, we'll go ahead and start with you. I, I, I don't know you all that well. And so I'm really excited to get to, to hear from you today and get to learn from you and Mike both. But can you give us a little bit of background on your just your your baseball background and why you decided to get into coaching? Yeah, of course. You know, I think baseball first and foremost is kind of ingrained in the fabric of me. It's something that I wanted to do since I literally could walk. You know, I was just kind of that little sad kid carrying a bat and a glove around by himself and my dad telling me kind of to figure it out. So, you know, I think it obviously started at a very early age, but you know, I was lucky enough to have baseball kind of take me to some really cool places. Uh, I got to go to college because of it. I went to the University of Nevada, was drafted out of there by the Cleveland Indians in 2004, way back in 2004. You know, kind of made my way up to the big leagues, uh, made my debut in uh, June 4th of 2009, and was very fortunate enough. I played parts of 10 seasons in the big leagues, got almost seven full years in. We like to joke around a lot about, you know, tricking people and I think I was kind of the king of tricking about eight different organizations into thinking I was good enough that, uh, you know, I could play in the big leagues. But I decided after 2018 was my last year. Joe Maurer is one of my really, really good friends with the Minnesota Twins, lifelong twin, lifelong, you know, Minneapolis, just Minnesotan in general, decided uh, he was going to retire. We had had a ton of talks about that in 2017. And uh, 2018, he decided he was going to kind of, you know, hang them up. And I told him, I said, you know what, I guess that sounds like a pretty good idea. So unofficially it was his, or officially it was his retirement, you know, party, the last game of the year, but unofficially it was mine too. Uh, decided to, to shut it down. And, you know, originally when I decided to retire, I was going to kind of just be at home and, and spend more time with my wife. And I have three little kids. My wife was very excited about that. And really quickly I got an opportunity uh, a few actually to getting to the coaching ranks, you know, it was something that I was always very interested in and everybody kind of told me like, Oh, you'd be perfect for this. 
this. And, you know, I kind of really have like a specific idea of, about it, or I, I guess a specific direction to go. And I just kind of, you know, took the opportunities and I interviewed for a few different teams in a few different positions. And I decided uh, I was going to take uh, an opportunity with the Dodgers. It was an organization that I always wanted to play for. I've kind of admired what they've done from afar. I also grew up in the Bay Area and I was not a Giants fan. So all of my best friends were. And, you know, obviously the Giants and the Dodgers have a very heated rivalry. So, you know, it was kind of a, a good shot to take at uh, all of my buddies on being the, on the opposing team. And, you know, I had the opportunity to do it. So I said, what the heck? It was the closest team to home at the time. So I could be as close as I could to my wife and kids. And uh, little did I know that uh, the schedule was going to be almost, it was definitely worse than it was as a player. And uh, my wife didn't like that too much. So now here we are, we're all at home, you know, hanging out. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the very long winded story of uh, how it, how it kind of came to be. Okay, very cool. Very cool. Mike, what do you got? Can you give us a short snapshot of your baseball background and what led you to coaching? Yeah, I didn't realize we knew who we uh, had to blame for Joe Maurer's retirement, but now we do. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I grew up uh, much, I think much different than Chris. Like baseball was not my best sport by a long shot. I was horrible, probably led the team in errors and growing up in high school and uh, or at least middle school and little league and then got to high school and things, you know, I realized I wasn't going to be six 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 seven like I was hoping to and basketball was going to have to shut down a little too tall for soccer. And uh, so I realized baseball was, you know, probably so that sport I could continue to play. And the conversation my parents and I had, baseball was probably my best chance to maybe go to college, uh, end up at a D3 school on academic scholarship, University of Redlands. And then uh, after two years, I transferred to Cal State Bakersfield, uh, I mowed lawns and, and was the grounds crew and trying to, you know, work my way into a team. End up having a really good senior year through some, I think, some big games at UCLA against Garrett Cole and Fresno State, uh, UC Santa Barbara, Irvine, all those big schools. And, and so got some attention from the draft and then played uh, seven years in the minor leagues, made a AAA and was destined to be a coach, I think, my whole career <laughs> in a lot of ways. So uh, I did uh, – got my MBA while I was playing. And uh, so I had a unique background, I think, in, in data and analytics, the ability to use that stuff. And then my undergrad in uh, biology pre-med offered me some biomechanics and understanding how the body moves. And it was just the right time in baseball. You know, we're seeing a big movement in that direction of uh, health and wellness, biomechanics, and then also use of data uh, along with the, I think, the emotional intelligence of having played the game. So it was really good. I'm going to go ahead and stay with you here. And uh, obviously, both of you guys have had uh, the background to be able to play the game and play at a very, very high level. And so you'll, you guys are going to nail this question. But you're working with some of the best players in the world, and you guys were some of the best players in the world. And so I guess my question is, how, are, how can we be or how can other coaches be just an asset and an advocate for them? Because, again, they're in the top 1% of uh, baseball players in the world. And they're really, really good. And so how can we kind of earn their trust, get them to trust us enough to where we can help them as best we can? Yeah, the two main things that come to mind, one is just like any relationship starts with empathy, right? We seek to understand and, and to put ourselves in their shoes. And we do this not just on the field, but off the field, understand what they're going through emotionally, um, their relationships, their children, their um, you know, with their extended family and the things that are going on, the challenges that are faced in baseball uh, is really important, I think, to me. And two is I, I try to understand 
am I, do I a hundred percent know what I'm talking about? If I don't know what I'm talking about, do I not have the knowledge or the hardware to be able to tell them uh, what this information means and why it matters? If I don't, that means my, I need to go further my education. I need to continue to understand it until I've asked all the right questions that I can confidently walk into the, to a, a relationship or a connection with a player and say, hey, here's what I got for you. And this is why it's relevant. If I can't fully answer that question for myself, then I have no business talking to a player about it. Um, I can maybe, you know, talk with them about an idea or where they think they're at, but I truly need to vet it out myself because then when I go to them, they can always look at me and say, he doesn't come to me unless he's got something that really matters and he's not going to waste my time with that. So and that's probably the two main things that come to mind right off the bat when you say that. I love that. I love that, that you're not just talking to talk. And I think that, that that's something that uh, empathy is. That's the first time I've heard that, but I really, really like that. And I think that's a great, a great uh, compliment to you. And, and it's something that I think we all elaborate on or, or we, we know what it is, but it's, it's another thing to put it in words. And, and I really like that. And, and so, Chris, what, what do you have to add to that? Is that kind of the direction that you go or is there anything else that you'd like to add on top of that? I mean, I think Mikey killed it with that for sure. You know, just being sometimes being a shoulder or an ear, you know, to to somebody that needs to vent about something else as well is really a good way to, you know, continue to hone in that relationship to build that relationship. I think I'm kind of coming at this from a very unique perspective because I was very fortunate to jump from playing in the big leagues to coaching in the big leagues. And, you know, I feel like that alone, you know, where I was not that far removed, you know, from being in their shoes exactly like like you know Mike said it's you have to have empathy for these kids because you know even though they're the top 1% you know there is only one Mike Trout there's one Bryce Harper you know that these guys are all not those guys and these guys have struggled and that is what makes them who they are yes but you know have being that shoulder to cry on sometimes and that ear to just you know to just sit there and listen and really try to understand the player for who he is. You know, that was one thing that I always tried to do was just as a player even is, you know, when I'm talking to a pitcher from a catching standpoint, you know, I tried to get to know these guys on a personal level because I felt like if I knew how you were going to act, you know, or react off the field, I knew what kind of player you most likely would be on the field. And, you know, just, just kind of creating those and cultivating those relationships from a communication standpoint and, you know, being empathetic, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, one of I, the thing I hated the most as a player was, you know, a guy just, you know, a coach telling you like, why can't you do this? Or, you know, the guy's 75 years old, you know, he never saw a ball that was 85 miles an hour, let alone 97, you know, and I don't mean that to be disrespectful by any means, but, you know, sometimes, you know, having that empathy is, is, is going to go a long way for those guys. No, and I think the further we get away from it, the further or the the more we rem- <laughs> the less we remember about how Without hard the game doubt. was. And uh, obviously, you you've seen it up close of of how good today's players are, and they're only getting better. And that's I love that. And and, and a, another thing that we're starting to see more of, and and you've you've got been in a really cool position because baseball started the trend in like the mid two thousands at while you were playing uh, to like the data age that we're in now, where we're just we've got literally almost everything imaginable. And with Hawkeye and and with markerless tracking coming now, and and it's just going to be crazy. So one. 
for me, I think it's how do we simplify complex topics into digestible pieces and, and using data, but kind of what's your process in understanding that, what's your process in delivering that, and just how do you use data in a productive way? Because I think, I think at times we're all swimming a little bit in, in just the numbers and spreadsheets and, and, and all of that. Without a doubt. I mean, <laughs> I had plenty of experience in this particular thing with my job last year. You know, coming off the field, now being thrust into this position where, you know, I only saw the end product at the, when I was a player, you know, I saw what basically we were talking about how it was taken from this and kind of molded into this. And then now this is the part that I get as the player. So now my job last year was to take all of that information and basically not dummy it down, so to speak, but kind of dummy it down to where you have to know excuse me, your individual that you're talking to, you know, because that's a big part of it. Some guys are super into this and some guys, you know, I won't name any names, but there are guys on the Dodgers pitching staff that were, you know, that are now potentially maybe on other pitching staffs that we're talking about here, who is one of the greatest human beings on planet earth, by the way, but he's going to, he's done things the way he's done them for 20 years and he's really good at it. He knows what to do and he just does it. He doesn't worry about the analytic side of it. And you know what? That's what makes our game so great because there are still guys that can go out there and compete that way. But then there are tons of guys that go out there and they just yearn for this information. And whether that was, you know, an organizational standpoint, how they were brought up from very, very early on to, you know, now most of these older guys have been kind of in this whole revolution for a little while. And they were still in the past revolution for a little while. So that's where, you know, that those sticky points come up and you have to kind of really understand who you're working with and kind of knowing when to press what and when not. And that's a lot of that is trial and error. Honestly, it's, you know, it's, it's having those conversations with guys in the video room or in the dugout in between innings and, you know, really not, honestly, I, I hate to use this word, but trying not to nerd out on them, you know, because we, you know, Mike and I talk about this a lot at our baseball facilities. We can nerd out with the best of them. You know, it's just him and I talking like we're on the same wavelength. You know, it just works like that. But not everybody is like that and not everybody understands you know, exactly the type of information that we have available to us. You know, you have to find those ways. That's what makes a good coach a good coach is somebody that can take, you know, something and basically not clone it. You know what I mean? you're individualizing it for whoever you, whoever it is that you're working with, which is, you know, it's not easy to do all the times. Definitely. And, and Mike, you're on the, obviously on the other side of the fence on, on the mound here. And, and it's like, okay, there, you could literally find anything imaginable for pitching data, I'm sure. And, and you, you've got the added bonus of it being a, a closed environment so they can throw a pitch and then look over at, at a rap soda or whatever they want to almost every single pitch if they wanted to. So kind of, you know, what, what can you add to that? Like what's, what's your process in trying to decide what's important and what's not and, and trying to just decipher information, trying to learn the learner and, and all of that different stuff just to deliver one or two messages, which is crazy to think about, but it's probably something you have to do every day. Yeah. You, you bring up a great point and some that Chris and I've talked about, you could spend, I mean, we could spend hours talking about this, right? Books for, um, the last hundreds of pages discussing how we get information to a player because where it starts at is getting on their level and we have to know where their level's at. So do they have a deep understanding of analytics? Do they have a mild understanding? Are they a player that maybe has a low education that is uh, English is their second language? Do we have somebody that is, you know, a guy from Harvard that studied biochemistry um, like a Sean Poppin or, 
we have guys that are really bright and really understand data and have been well exposed to it. Some guys are like feel guys and they've always thought about, Hey, how does this feel? How do my, my hand feel, my fingers feel, my shoulder feel. It feels like this. It feels like that. And saying, how do I get on their level? Um, how do I empathize with them? And I think the empathy starts with understanding their background. So we've had guys come to the organization, especially in AAA. We get a lot of guys that are in big league camp um, that come down. Uh, a lot of times they're free agent signs. So they've, got a, they've gotten to the big leagues before. They've gotten to a high level and, and had success this way. They're not 18 where we can really say, hey, we've got three or four years to develop this guy and get him ready. Instead, we're saying, hey, this guy's 30 years old. We're trying to help him create as much magic that's left in, in his tank and see how long he can play for. Can we help him get back to the major leagues or can we help make him a contributor uh, on our 40-man roster, whatever that dynamic might be? So I think when we, we look at it from that standpoint, we really try to say, what does this player know? What don't they know? What has their experience been? Because some of them have – analytics has been used against them. Hey, you suck because of X, Y, and Z. And whether that was said to them or that's what they heard is irrelevant. That's what their message was that they've received. And when we start from that position of seeking to understand – and then helping rebuild some of that education process is huge. So one of the big things that we try to focus on is we make data normal, right? Similar to what Chris said, like we try to simplify it, small digestible pieces. We make data part of the normal conversation, not by flooding people with 50 numbers every day, hogging them down with certain things, but we try to target what are the few things that are most relevant to this picture um, and why do they matter? And when we find an opportunity, when they give us an opening, we try to make sure that we lean on the relationships we built with them and then put that into play. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of taking the rap soto and just putting it out there and we might just leave it out there and not even use it, but it's sitting out there. The numbers are popping up. It's a recurring theme. And sometimes it might take a few bullpens for a guy might say, Hey, can you walk me through all this? And I always encourage you guys to say, Hey, like this might be overwhelming at first. I'm going to help you target one or two things of, Hey, let's get your spin access up on this bitch or Hey, we're really looking for uh, this spin efficiency on your breaking ball to get above 75%, whatever that dynamic might be. And I think for a lot of the guys, when they see that it's not meant to be this, hey, you need to understand this massive spreadsheet of information, it really goes a long way. A quick story that I, I went to a player who, you know, had been, spent a lot of time in AAA, had some success in the big leagues, but not, hadn't been too sticky up there yet. And um, I came to him with, I mean, I thought this is my first year coaching 2018. Um, and I thought, okay, here's my spreadsheet. Here's everything. I got my highlighter out. And I've got literally hundreds of numbers on these multiple pages. And it looks like we're going to run like a science experiment, right? We've got this deep algorithm and it looks real fancy. I think I know I'm, I'm really on top of it. And I walk over and I'm like, you know, Hey, do you got a minute? You know, I try to always be respectful of guys and, and which going to them, Versus saying, hey, when you're ready, come to me is a much better option. And some I wish I did sooner in my career. I try to never go to a guy and say, hey, I got something for you. And, you know, and it's in my hand. Instead, I say, hey, when you have time, I've got some stuff for you. So that's on their terms when they're ready and they're in their right mental, emotional state. So I go to him, walk over, I sit down, I start highlighting all these numbers. All right, this means this and that means that. And here's why this all matters. You just see him like his eyes are about to explode. His brain is hurting. He's got a migraine and he's still got to play a game that night. He says, Mac, what do you want me to do? And I said, oh, I just want you to throw some more curveballs. And he said, that was it? And we had this moment, like this, almost this laugh. And it was like, yeah, your curveball is really good. I just want you to throw some more of them. And it was, it was really just as simple as that, even though I had all this stuff to back it up and really justify it. And he said, and I talked to him later and he said, look, I trust you. 
right? I've got faith in what you say. Like I can tell that you're thorough in this. You wouldn't tell me something to be wrong. Just tell me what you want me to do and I'll probably do it. And it really was this eye-opening experience. And that guy ended up in the big leagues last year. It was a, you know, a really uh, big time back end arm for us uh, in the bullpen and, you know, changed, uh, changed the trajectory of his career. You know, I think a lot of the times with the new data revolution that we're, we're currently going through, you know, it, it, I think as a player, sometimes they're very standoffish about it because they think that a lot of these front offices, you know, they plug an algorithm in and what it spits out is what you do. And that potentially could be true for some organizations. I can't speak to all of them, but the ones that I have been in and the one that I'm currently in is one of the, at the forefront of the data revolution. That is absolutely not how it goes. Like this is just another tool, just like, you know, throwing a bullpen is a tool for a pitcher, you know, to work on your craft, to hone in your craft. This is another tool. Yes, we have different ways of, you know, computing this tool essentially, but all this information that we have is meant to help guys. And, you know, it's not, it's not force fed down anybody's throat. And it, that's something that I really appreciate because, you know, I think they've realized quickly on that guys have a tendency to push back a ton when they're being forced to do something. But it, when it's their idea, you know, how, how Mike kind of said that I've got something for you when it, you know, whenever you have time, come and check this out. And whether it be as simple as like, Hey man, we've realized that your curveball is really good. We want you to throw it more, you know, like that's what the analytic part of this stuff is about, you know? And, and I think sometimes it gets misconstrued with, you know, the data and, you know, being, we used to joke when I was in Tampa as a player that we had this thing called the matrix and the matrix spit out the lineup. And, you know, that, that wasn't, necessarily true you know that now coming to look at it from the other side of the game that's not really how it was you know it the matrix definitely may have helped be like hey this guy's matchup is really really good but you know Evan Longoria is going to play against whoever it is you know at that moment in time it wasn't like you know uh Longo's not doing too hot against you know uh whoever pick your team to in the AL East you know that he's not going to play that day like that's not how it works so I just thought I'd throw that two cents in there sometimes I think the data has more confidence in the players than sometimes the coaches do because it can't be emotionally biased, right? The data will say, no, this guy's like still a really good player, but he might've been over his last 12. And we put too much stock into like the recency biased. Whereas the data is just going to say like, Hey, this guy's still the best player you got. He's still the best matchup. It's just been, you know, a run of bad luck um, or Hey, a couple of tough at bats, but it's, it has this deep confidence because of long-term we play 162 games and so you see over the long trend, whereas, you know, you might have like a football game where it's 16 games a year. and Maybe there's a little more recency of what you got to do. But, I mean, the data backs the players most of the time, right? And it helps put them in the best position to succeed. And then you have the emotional side where you have coaches and people that are in the clubhouse that understand that have that depth of knowledge with that person that's really helpful. No, I love that. And, and please keep playing off of each other. Cause again, I told you guys beforehand, I want you guys to go back and forth. So I apologize for interrupting, but, uh, Chris, I want to go back to you for just a second from something that Mike said. One, I, I think that making data normal, that's, uh, that's a slogan that needs to go on a t-shirt. I think that's really, really good. But also something that he said was, I'm going to be patient for you. And so whenever you look back at your playing career and, and now into your coaching career, Chris, is that something that you think that more coaches need to do? Like, I don't want you to speak for everybody, but I'm looking at me 
and, and especially as myself as a younger coach, I was really eager to try and help someone. And, and usually I was, I was doing it too soon and when they weren't ready. But is, is that something that, that you have seen with, with players that you've worked with as well? And especially whenever you were a player yourself? Absolutely. I mean, that, that was, I, I really do wish more coaches would take that sort of mindset into it just because, you know, I think nowadays, especially with the data being what the data is, you know, it, 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 it does such a wonderful job of honing in on something that we can specifically target, right? Like whether it's, you know, your spin efficiency coming off your changeup or, you know, the spin axis on your fastball or your two seamer, right? Like we can hone in now, like this is exactly what we, like we know this is what the problem is. Like now we can go about fixing it, right? Or fixing it this way. I think a lot of the times with so much data being available and so much like minute, finite things that happen, guys try to put their stamps on guys super early on. And, you know, a lot of the times, like you said, just guys aren't, they're either not ready. They're not mentally ready for that. They're not physically ready for that. or they're at a physical point in, you know, time in that season where they're ready for something like that to possibly take on an extra workload and whether it be a batting practice or bullpen usage or, you know, the amount of bullpens you're throwing, like guys just physically aren't capable of doing that at that point in time in the season. And I think, you know, just, I've had tons of it happen to me and, you know, the players are always your best coach as a player, you know, yourself better than anybody else. And although you have to be very, very um, open with yourself and honest with yourself, because I think a lot of the times we see guys just get so stubborn that, you know, they start to go backwards instead of forwards. But if you're open and honest with yourself and, you know, you can say things in a polite manner and be like, hey, man, I totally listen. I totally hear you what you're saying. Like, this is what's going through my head right now. And you know, if, let's maybe find a way that we can come together on this. You know, it's, it's, it's a two-sided street. It's a two-way communication where, you know, especially early on in my career when the data like this wasn't as much available, guys had a tendency to kind of, you know, I know when I was drafted by the Indians, they couldn't say a word to us for the first month of the season, of our short season. And I don't think that necessarily happens as much anymore. It may still, but, you know, I've seen as soon as we get in, we got to get these guys in our program you know, we got to get them up to speed with what we're doing. And I do think there is a time and a place for that. But you also have to understand as guys are getting, you know, fresh kids coming in from either high school who've never been away from their mom and dad before and don't know how to do their own laundry to where college guys are coming in just young and, you know, full of enthusiasm and energy. And you get those guys and you meld them together. You know, you need to give those guys a chance to gel and kind of feel themselves out a little bit. And then, and then kind of start layering on, you know, whatever types of things that you want them to do. But I do think that, you know, really, really trying to give them the the space that they need is going to be a huge, huge help for a lot of kids. No, I'm a firm believer in success leaves clues. And I think that, that there's, that's been dropped so many times and, and I love getting to hear uh, you reinforce that. And Chris, I'm going to stay here with you because I don't know if our listeners know, but you actually made 11 career relief appearances. So maybe we should be talking to you about pitching. I, I don't That's know. That's why I, I mean, felt like I was really good for this podcast. Is I'm like, I definitely know exactly everything that you're talking about in regards to pitching. 
I may have dropped, you know, I have more innings in the big leagues than you do uh, on yeah, a couple of kids last year sure. that were, <laughs> that were giving me some issues, but <laughs> that's funny. No, that's really, really good. I, I, as I was looking through your bio, I was like, that is something that I definitely <laughs> need to make sure that people are aware of whenever we're talking about this stuff. But I do think that, you know, even though that those were probably just fun games and, and you got to be able to do it, uh, you did get to see a different side of it. And so has, has that helped you whenever you're working with both sides as, no as the game planning doubt. coach? No doubt. That honestly was an incredible experience to draw back on just because, you know, granted every game that I pitched in was a blowout, whether it was, I don't think I ever pitched in a game when we were ahead. I think it was always when we were behind and we were behind by a lot, but you, I've never felt so like in a small space as I did when I was on that mound. Like, yes, I looked at it from a completely different perspective and my thought process when I was out there was I am not a pitcher. I'm not trying to be a pitcher. You know, I've, I've seen it happen. I faced a guy and he blew out in Toronto when he was pitching to me in the 18th inning. And I was always told myself that I would just, I would never be that guy. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to go out there and pretend that I'm a pitcher. Number one, because I wanted to wipe my rear end for the next week straight you know, or, you know, I didn't want to have Tommy John and shoulder surgery at the same exact time. I figured hopefully I could kind of stagger those at some point in my career. But, but yes, having that where, you know, what the, what everybody, everybody is looking at you on the mound when you're behind the plate, you know, your cover, your face is covered, which is a good and a bad thing, but you know, nobody can necessarily see the emotional side of things from behind the plate. Whereas when you're on the mound, everybody is looking at you you know, and all of the things that are going through your head, it's about executing a pitch or simplifying things or, you know, the billions and billions of things that can potentially go through somebody's head in a moment like that, having that to draw back on and be like, bro, listen, dude, I, I get what you're saying. Now, granted, I've never pitched in the playoffs or anything like that, or tried to close out a game, but like, dude, I, I totally get where you're coming from. So like, I, I understand where you're at on that. So like, let's just start off on this level and not that, I'm above you or you're above me kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like having that level playing field to where, again, guards are let down at that point from, you know, the player's standpoint. And, and then you can start to go to work. That's really cool that obviously playing 10 years in the big leagues is a really cool thing, but getting to make 11 uh, relief appearances is, is another really cool one. And, and Mike, I'm, I'm going to come to you with this one because I'm, I'm a huge proponent of trying to understand uh, like an organization's culture. And I think that this is obviously the best way I can do it because we can't work for all 30 teams in, in the major leagues and, and all the way down. Uh, but what sets the twins apart besides them basically hiring every great college coach in America? What sets them apart as far as just the day-to-day, -day, the stuff that we can't necessarily see? But what really sets the day-to-day -day apart for, for you guys? You know, I, I think one of the like you said, we bring in really bright minds and we, we bring in people that are really diverse in their thought process. They come from outside the norm. And sometimes what happens is we, we spend too much time in our own bubble or our own, yeah, well, no pun intended with the bubble comment right now. Uh, we, uh, but it's, it's one of those things where we spend so much time talking the same language that we only have a small bandwidth that we can pull from of resources. And so we go out and as the twins in general and say, Hey, there's something more extreme over here. There's something more extreme over there, not because it's extreme, but because it's interesting and let's take a look at it. Let's explore it. Let's talk about it. Let's interview it. Like, and those people that have different experiences and options to look at things from a, a, 
a wide uh, plethora of uh, knowledge. And those guys come in and they challenge the norm. They come in, they're kind of bold personalities is say, Hey, like let's knock some stuff around and see what happens. And so there's a bit of a like ready, shoot, aim mentality, right? Like we're not going to wait and work through it because just like any good innovator or entrepreneur, they don't wait until they get to like, Hey, we're perfectly lined up to make this happen. Like I've got an idea. Let's jump on it. Looks good. Let's roll. And then we kind of figure it out from there and adjust on the fly. So there's a sense of urgency that is really unique, I think, within the organization um, compared to the organization I've been with or uh, that I played for. And then also guys I've talked to, you know, there's a bit of a like, Hey, make sure you talk to your coordinator. Hey, did your coordinator? Okay. Okay. Now ask the other coordinators. Did we check all the box all the way up versus saying like, look, we trust you and kind of that Jocko theme, right? Decentralized command. We've got to empower our employees to know what they're talking about. Empower your coaches to be smart, to make good decisions. And we'll learn from there. You know, if we make mistakes, it happens. But we don't think that we need to fall in this like marching orders and work back and forth up and down the chain of command constantly, but instead say, hey, what was the thought process on the decision making? And I mean, Jocko talks about this on a regular basis, not to say, I know he's getting his money's worth on the sponsorship, but it's, you know, he discusses that idea of like, hey, we're going to make mistakes, but we're going to go learn from them, right? Where we revert back to our training. What do we know? What are the things you trust yourself to make decisions on? And if you're unsure of your decision-making ability, ask for help. Pretty simple. I really like that. And, and you killed it on that. Yeah, that was really, really Seriously, good. Chris, I, what, I mean, I, I, I've been actually in both of your organizations. So, you know, the cool thing is, I think another thing that made those two and my current one so special was the people too. You know, just having really, really good people that are all kind of pulling the same rope so to speak, I think is, you know, not, nobody has their own agenda. Cause I've been in organizations where it's like that. And I don't think it's a reason or, you know, organizations don't do well because of stuff like that. Like you have to have the right people in place from the bottom level all the way to the top. You know what I mean? That are in constant communication. Just like Mike said, the one thing that I thought like to a T and I had, you know, the leader of the twins right now drafted me with the Cleveland Indians. So I know him very well, Derek Falvey. And he has been like that from day one that I've ever known him. And it's just, it's about empowering your people. It's about, you know, not, it's about decentralized command. That's exactly what it's about. You know, it's not about, oh, I can't do this. I have to call a coordinator to ask to, if I can do this with a kid. It's like, no, we trust exactly what you're going to do. You know, let's go out, let's put it into place. If we create a plan, let's communicate it. Let's continue to communicate it throughout the thing. We'll see how the progress goes. And then, you know, if we need to make an adjustment or we need to bang it and go a different direction, then we go a different direction. You know, it's, it's just, it's not like nobody's looked down upon because, you know, they decided to go out on a limb and try something or, you know, people feel they're, you know, empowered to go out on a limb and try something crazy. That's the one thing that we do with the Dodgers is, you know, we do a lot of unorthodox things, but it makes guys comfortable and you get the best out of your players when they're, when they're comfortable in a comfortable environment. You know, it's funny you say that. I had a, uh, a professor in, when I was doing my MBA program, and they said the second most expensive thing in business is to fire somebody. And the most expensive thing is to hire the wrong person. Really? And I feel like that really <laughs> stuck with me. And it's so true with coaching, right? If you don't hire the right people, eventually you got to fire them anyway. Mm -hmm. So it becomes double expensive. But if you hire the people the right way, the people you can trust, and then you train them well, not to 
don't solely subscribe to our ideas, but we have common principles and themes, but help them understand what we offer that we do think is special, but also so what is you, what do you bring that's so special? And I think that's where Chris offers like a really unique vantage point um, in, from his playing career, but there's a reason that you trick so many teams into keeping you around, <laughs> right? Like as you describe it, you do this phenomenal job of pulling people together and tapping people, creating trust, camaraderie, this deep connection that allows people to have success, not because they are always hundred percent right, but there's a level of forgiveness. So like, Hey, I know I trust you. And that doesn't mean you're going to be right every time, but it means you have my best intentions are, and we're going to go farther that way because we trust one another versus this like, well, are you hundred percent sure? No, like I trust you. And you invoke that in people. It's, it's something that you bring out through your charisma. And I, you hear about it with the twins, you know, the major league staff and front office when they talk about you with people, you know, whether it's in Reno or anywhere else, you know, anybody that's come across you in your career, you bring that really uniquely to a team. And I'm confident that's why you've uh, lasted as long <laughs> as you did. It's amazing. It definitely amazing. wasn't because of my playing abilities. That's for sure. I thought <laughs> it was my good looks, but you know, we'll take that too. Yeah. Oh, that's good times. Good times. I could, I could sit here with you guys all day and listen to you just go back and forth. And, <laughs> and so, so we're actually getting close to playing and it's going to be an interesting season uh, for all of us. And so Mike, we'll, we'll stick with you, but what is, what does the day to day look like? So let's say we're playing a seven o'clock game and, and let's just go from last year because I have no idea what your days are going to, and you may not in, in the next couple of weeks, okay. but let's rewind a year and say we play at seven Oh five. Uh, what time are you waking up? What does that day look like? And, and what all are you trying to fit into it? Going back a year, I mean, it's crazy. It seems like it was so long ago. And yet, like some of those days are, are so vivid in your mind. Most of the days kind of start, you know, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning, get up, get rolling, all that breakfast stuff, and um, get to the ballpark, usually get a workout in. Sometimes I'll go out trail running in the morning, really like getting in the mountains and, and being active, kind of get my mind right to spend a little of my, my intro. I think one of the most important things I do is, is I, I try to understand myself. And if I understand myself, then I have a baseline for what my bias is probably going to be. And my, I tend to be pretty introverted in that space. So I burn some of my introverted time through listening to podcasts or getting my trail running in. And then that way, my social time, I burn that social capital with, my player, with the players and the staff. So usually get there, kind of uh, work out, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock kind of run through the initial feedback we're getting from the previous game, anything that I want to make sure I tackle for the day, get a little bit of a checklist going. Generally, I'll, you know, text a couple of players that maybe, uh, hey, you know, give me a heads up when you get to the ballpark, just got a few things for you. Or, hey, you know, just uh, want to see if you want to throw your pen today or tomorrow, how you feeling. Just kind of give them a heads up so they know when they come to the ballpark, they've got their schedule versus springing anything on them. Most home games, you know, I mean, BP, uh, or we'll have catch play right around 2 o'clock pins 2.15, 2.30, get some BP going around uh, 3 o'clock-ish, 4. Other teams BP, game prep oh, during their BP. We eat some food, go through our advanced scouting report process. Uh, and then just a lot of small things in between leading up to that 7 o'clock game. You know, really try to get everything done by 6.30 so that when 6.30 hits uh, or 6.25 right in there, whenever that pitcher wants to go out. But give myself a time to say like, Hey, we've taken care of the first half of the day, which is all of our development side. And now it's performance time. And to, to understand how our minds flip that switch isn't always binary, right? There's a little bit, bit of a, a, a lag time in there that it takes. 
And so it's important for me to get in that right state of mind to switch over to game time. And that's where you let the players really perform um, and think about how do I meet this player in that space? Because oftentimes during a game, there's, there's really just, if you say anything, but there's only maybe one or two things you might say the entire game to, to impact them. And one of the big things at the upper levels is not providing a helicopter mentality, but almost a removal, right? When that player needs you, they want to have the confidence and the, the relationship where they can come to you. And that's sometimes just walking by or having you know a cup of water ready for them or just give them a fist bump, whatever it is that happens. Um, and then understand how to read your players throughout the game. Um, there's moments where you see they're locked in, they're ready to go. Hey, they've processed it. You can see what they're expressing. Past experience, you know, it's really important to build those relationships. Uh, what's going on throughout the game? Are we having maybe a scattering port challenge? Are we struggling with a relationship between pitcher catcher? Do we have some unfortunate, you know, fielding stuff go on? Um, is the weather playing a factor? Like, what is what is going on throughout that game? We really try to just read, and um, that's when you're in. I think the state of most of a servant mentality, right? Like, I'm here solely because the, to help the player at that moment, and that doesn't mean I have to do anything. Sometimes serving somebody means staying out of their way, right? Letting them roll. And sometimes that's like coming over and saying, hey, shit happens. You know, and sometimes it's walking over and saying, hey, like next three batters you got, remember, you know, fastballs at the top half. Whatever those like little things are, but we try to really remove ourselves and let that player play the game, um, stay out of their way. You know, pretty quick and easy, half hour or so post game, we're wrapping up any, you know, odds and ends that come up, sort of quick planning for the next day. I usually try to get things tidied up if there's anything in the middle of, and then, yeah, then we, we roll. I love that. And, and again, thank you for getting, getting, giving us a behind the scenes look for game planning purposes. And since we're talking about that and, and it's kind of the main theme of, of this show, do you meet with the catcher, the catching coach, and you guys just all kind of collaborate or, or kind of how does that aspect look from a, just from a game planning point of view? Chris, I love this. I was actually the catching coach. Uh, as well as the as a, a like assistant bullpen pitching coach. Where so, do you think he learned all I of did. his catching stuff from? Uh, well, I didn't move to Reno until <laughs> this year, so <laughs> um, we uh, yeah. From that standpoint, one of my big areas of strengths is my biggest strengths is uh, the analytics side and understanding scatter reports, understanding how it plays out um, in the game, and and giving recommendations and and so with the game planning, it really comes down to we try to give the catcher and the pitcher lineup reports ahead of time. We try to do pre-series meetings, but most importantly, it, it goes back to the very beginning of the season and even before the season where we do an education process on how our scouting reports work. The more information that player can take in on their own, the less that we have to do, which means that what we do do is just small additions to fill in maybe some of the holes or to make sure that we have good quality control. Um, so we have, Oftentimes what I'll try to do is encourage the other players to run the scouting reports with each other, right? If we get a new guy that comes up from double A, like I try not to run it. I ask the, another player, one of our you know, more experienced guys, like, Hey, can you get them up to date on scouting reports and stuff? And they're great. They, they know it oftentimes, I mean, as well as I do, um, if not better. And especially because they see it in themselves. Um, now, uh, what that allows them to do is now the catcher comes in prepared. He's already got a deep level of knowledge of it. The pitcher comes in and we're just providing a little bit of extra steering, right? If there's something that kind of gets tripped up, like, uh, are we sure on this guy? Like we might want to go slider over curveball with this guy. Um, you know, he really doesn't handle sliders as well as he does the curveball. 
or whatever that might be. It might be matching up with movement profiles and how that pitcher's movement profile plays into what that hitter hits well. And then we really try to prioritize, like, where does this matter, right? Where does my influence matter? Because if we've got a pitcher that dominates this type of hitter, this type of swing, we don't need to do anything. We just need to stay out of their way. Like, hey, stick to your strengths. That's probably the most common theme we say in advanced scouting report meetings, stick to your strengths. And as long as we've done the baseline knowledge to help that player know what his strengths are, we don't have to do anything else. But if we haven't done a good education process leading up to that, then what ends up happening is they don't know their strengths. So they might think like, oh, my changeup's my strength, when really that's his third pitch. And so he goes out, throws a changeup, gives up a ding-dong, and we're over there going like, oh, shoot, I should have, shouldn't have said that, right? But that goes back six months or four months or three months. And so we really try to focus on that. And then the guys that maybe are more challenging at bats where we say, hey, this guy's swing and what he hits well matches up is a tough matchup for this pitcher. So we really do need to prioritize what – pitch selection might look like or location sequencing, um, whether it's aggressiveness, whether it's, uh, you know, hot zones, all those things. So. Oh, that's great. So I'm, I'm going to flip it over to you, Chris. Uh, you've got a little different situation, which is, which is interesting. So tell us a little bit about what your day would look like. Yeah. I hope you guys are ready. Cause my day was <laughs> a disaster. Um, usually I'm up by eight o'clock in the morning. Like I said earlier, I have three young kids that were going to school I would FaceTime for a half an hour before school and be at the ballpark in LA by nine o'clock, 9am. I was usually, if not literally the first one there, the door was locked half the time until about nine ten. But, um, I would beat those guys to the club, all of our clubhouse staff to, to the clubhouse. And I would get to the clubhouse by nine o'clock, nine fifteen, and get a quick workout. in. that was kind of my time to, you know, stress relief, just kind of blow it out, honestly, because, you know, as we'll get into here, you'll, you'll see why I needed that time. But from 9.15, 9.30 to 10.30-ish was that, that workout time. And then basically from right around 10.30 to 12.30, 1 o'clock to when players really started showing up into the clubhouse, I was constantly working on the series ahead, the next series we had. My job was specifically to figure out how all of our pitchers individually were going to get the opposing hitters out. So it was something that was cool because it was something I did as a catcher almost my entire career anyway. And it was a very easy thing to, you know, kind of just continue doing that while adding on some, some of the cool analytics stuff that we talked about and some of the cooler information and stuff that I didn't have a chance to use as a player that now I do, you know, on the coaching staff, which was pretty neat. But once the players started rolling around, you know, guys would be rolling in and out of my office, you know, want to see maybe an inning or a pitch on video. So, you know, half the time I'm, I'm playing video tech for these guys and getting you know, whatever it is that they wanted pulled up. Or basically I was a therapist and had to, you know, be that shoulder to lean on and cry on and, and kind of, you know, knowing when to get into somebody a little bit and then when to kind of the guys you needed to coddle a little bit more through those times. Once basically the lineup for the opposing team came in that day, my day really started. I had to input all of our lineup into uh, – we have a system that we use that basically we put, our, put the guys in lineup order every day. Yeah, so basically inputting that lineup into our system, which now I can spit out all of our wristbands. We do the catcher's wristbands, which on, on our wristbands have – our each individual one is for each pitcher that we have. And I'm in charge of getting everything dialed in, lined up. 
I'm riding on those wristbands, little like quick hitter, little things for our catcher to remember little, you know, just easy, simple things, whether it be, it's like, like Mike said, slider over curveball or up over down in over out. Um, you know, he's obviously extremely aggressive. He's super passive, you know, just little quick hit things like that, that go along with our wristbands. Once that got done, uh, usually BP started. So I would go out, throw group two of BP almost every day, come back in for the last, you know, half hour of BP work on the next series ahead on trying to figure out how we're going to get these guys out, have a quick snack. Six o'clock every day was our, our, basically our manager, the bench coach or the pitching coach myself. And then whatever front office wanted to come in and kind of, basically go over our bullpen who's available for the day. You know, what kind of runs do we like? Um, if the starter can give us this inning, you know, to the fifth inning, how do we kind of work backwards from there? We've got, you know, Kenley Jansen in the ninth, if he's available. And then how do you go from there and basically fill in the gaps from there? This is who we like for this section of the lineup, you know, lefties coming in and they're here basically, you know, trying to piece together that the best we possibly can, you know, if we're up by one or two, you know, if we're down by three, obviously that changes who's being utilized in the bullpen depending on, you know, availability and stuff like that. By that time, by 6.45-ish, usually we're done with that meeting depending on how long-winded some people can get in there arguing over who should be facing who. But it was also one of my favorite times of the day just because you really got to dive into everything that I had put together to try to give Doc, our manager, the best possible, you know, idea of who's the best matchup we have possible. So it was a lot of the stuff that, that I got to be a part of, which was kind of neat game time, seven Oh five. I was usually out there by then, but if not right by the second inning, for sure, uh, still trying to just work on things for the next series or, you know, finish cutting out the cards for the wristbands, any, any little thing like that, um, or printing something out for one coach. I, I turned into being like the computer tech guy, which when I started this job, I basically knew how to turn a computer on and that was about it. But I got very well versed in uh, computer technology and printer technology really, really quick. So that was a lot of uh, trial by error. But, you know, my really only downtime during the day was pretty much when our pitcher was on the mound, the starting pitcher, at least, you know, if he gave us six innings, the only time I really was on was anytime our guys come into the dugout, I'm constantly sitting down with our catcher and the pitcher that inning going through, Hey, here's who we have coming up. You know, this is just a quick reminder. You know, I would have my more detailed scouting report with me as he would have it as well in his little binder that I carried out there for him. But we would kind of go over it real quick. Just remember, Hey, if this guy gets on base, he's a runner, you know, this guy's a bunner, you know, whatever. Remember his curveball plays really well over, you know, his changeup, say if it's Clayton Kershaw or something like that. Right. So once the starter was out of the game, I really had – it was go time because a lot of what I did was with the bullpen and matching up these guys. So I'm constantly working our catcher through, hey, you are going to have Joe Kelly up until this person. Then it's going to be Adam Kolarik for lefty. You know, now it's going to be different because they have to have three – you know, they have to have a three-run or three-batter run. But back in the good old days, you know, when we didn't have that stuff, you know, you're constantly running guys through, hey – we're going to have this pitcher coming in. So also try to remember, hey, this is the matchup we really, really want. If we have to pitch around a guy, you know, and, and basically know who you have warming up in the bullpen. 
because if we want that matchup more than we want the matchup with the current pitcher, it's just not a time to bring the pitcher for the bullpen in yet. You know, let's be smart about that. And just having those little types of communications uh, in game is what really, really counts and what really helped us out. Once the game ended, I would go back into the weight room and usually cardio for 45 minutes, have a quick dinner, get back to the hotel by 11, 1130 and work until five in the morning uh, on these series ahead. And that was seven days a week for 200 and, you know, 40 days of the year. But I loved every second of it and I drank insane amounts of coffee to stay awake. So, and so let's talk a little bit about what the game, like what you're paying attention to in the game. Uh, and, and you hit on that a little bit, but like we all get caught up in, in paying attention to the parts that we're most familiar with, I think, or, or just things that we feel like we're good at noticing. Uh, is there anything that comes to mind uh, as far as like, what are you paying attention to? Where did you feel like uh, you were most helpful? And, and you talked about like planning out the innings and who was available for the best matchups. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, but was there anything else? Yeah, believe it or not, I, I actually paid a ton of attention to if our pitchers were tipping. You know, I didn't necessarily – I was watching the game when, you know, we were at bat. Um, but most of the time that was in the dugout time where it's crucial to – dial in, you know, the catcher and the pitcher for the next inning coming up and having those conversations with those guys. But I was constantly looking for if our pitcher was tipping, you know, just, just trying to be aware of sometimes guys as a, as a catcher, you've got so much going through your head at any moment in time, you know, keep an idea of like, Hey, do you see a guy making an adjustment in the box? You know, whether you do or you don't, you know, or a way, a guy, just sometimes the way a guy takes a pitch, you know, as a pitcher and a catcher, sometimes you get a feeling, you know, that it's just that, that in that internal gut feeling that you get at if a guy spit on a pitch, you had no business doing, you know, had you've seen it on video, you know, all of their data tells you that he should be swinging at this pitch. You know, what, what is the reason for that? You know, was it him making an adjustment? Was it, you know, is our pitcher giving something away that he shouldn't be kind of thing. And I think, you know, obviously with everything that's been going on, non coronavirus related in, in baseball world, you know, as regards to stealing signs and all that stuff, we try to just be extra, I guess, or try to step our game up on that because we were the unfortunate, you know, the unfortunate recipients of losing a World Series in 2017 to the Houston Astros when, you know, this whole scandal was going on. So, you know, obviously, rightfully so, that's a, that's a really big thing in our, our clubhouse, in our organization. So that was something that I looked for when I was a player anyway. So it was kind of a natural, natural transaction or transition, I guess you can say. But you know, most of the time it was just communicating with Doc, um, letting him know like, hey, you know, this is what his pitch count is. You know, hey, we really like this matchup just to give you a reminder. You know, if you're thinking about making a move, let's get somebody going. Do we want to have somebody up for the lefty? Being in the National League, you know, pitchers hitting, there's a lot of gamesmanship going on on getting somebody up, not getting somebody up. So just, you know, those little reminders for Doc when he's got obviously a ton of stuff going through his head as well. You know, having those little things that, uh, you know, hey, do you want to have somebody warming up? Pitcher spots coming up. If we need to pinch it, do we need somebody going? You know, little things like that that the bench coach would do, I would do, and just, you know, communicating, just having fun talking baseball. So just for Mike's sake here, what are some tips whenever you see pitchers tipping pitches? What are some different ones that uh, that Mike can look for whenever he's he's making sure that his pitchers aren't tipping? Fingers are definitely one of the biggest ones. 
you know, whether it be sticking out straight or really squeezing in any sort of wrist differential, you know, whether a guy comes set and he's like this on his fastball or a guy comes set, and he's like this on his curveball because he's spiking it in his glove or, you know, one of our, a certain pitcher we had had an issue with being outside of his glove and being inside of his glove on a certain pitch. You'd be surprised you guys. And this is nothing against pitchers because I love you guys, but how many guys when they are in the stretch, you know, they have the ball behind their hand, behind their body, they're wiggling it, wiggling it, wiggling it. They will either stop on the exact pitch they're throwing or they will wiggle, 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 and they'll lift their glove up first and then they will have the pitch they're throwing in their hand, you know, and it's just things that they don't think they're doing or, you know, it can be as simple as you're breathing, you know, like when you come set and go, it could be like a go, go, you know, as where if some, we have a base dealer on a base stealing threat on base, that's something we got to be aware of. You know what I mean? Like we can't be giving away free bases like that just because, you know, the, the data shows, the numbers show, if you get a runner from first to second base, you know, the average runs per scored inning goes up like 0.64. So I don't know, I don't know if that's the exact thing, but it, you know, it's a pretty significant advance in runs per inning that go up just by a runner moving up 90 feet. You know, so those are little things that, that may not be noticed by anybody else, but are constantly going on. And, you know, from a, position player standpoint, guys are always looking for any sort of tip they can get. You know, it's just, it's not cheating by any means because if the pitcher's telling you what they're doing in game, it's one thing if you're cheating on a video to see, you know, what signs I'm putting down, that is completely different. But, you know, if a pitcher comes set a certain way on one pitch and comes set on a certain way on another pitch, like he's giving you the information, you're not being smart enough to either utilize it and take it or, you know, put it into play essentially is how kind of we think about it. Yeah. It's an interesting dichotomy, right? Like how much is Jocko? Is, uh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with tipping pitches is fascinating. And, and we don't just tip pitches in the form of like, I mean, you think about Dempster, right. obviously the most extreme, right? He had his pitches get tipped. And he said, this is never going to happen again. So got extreme with it and talk with him. He's, he said it was as simple as that. It wasn't like a, no more Garcia Parra, like, this is my prep work. This gets me mentally focused. He's like, no, I just don't want to pick it. And he just kept it. So we did. So, but we do this in counts, right? Like, how many times do you look at a count-based trend and you're like, this guy throws 92% fastballs in 2 counts. Like, you want to talk about tipping pitches, like, don't worry about this. Like, look at the counts. Right. And this guy is, is tipping almost every time. And so we've had – the lowest hanging fruit is is sometimes – not even looking at this, right? Because you could spend an entire game trying to figure out till the fifth inning, like, oh, I get it now. I know what he's doing, right? He double taps on fastball. He taps once on changeup. Or it's like a weaker tap on changeup. Mm-hmm. Or, right? If we can just, if we can get that tip ahead of time, either one through video, like Chris is talking about the physical side. But even if you had like a count-based or a pitch type, those sort of things are huge. I mean, any little advantage, it's hard enough to hit, right? And now we've got things like Rapsodo and TrackMan and, these edutronic cameras where we can understand exactly what the guy's doing and we create these really unique movement profiles. And so any advantage you can take, you're going to capture that right away. But it also works on the other side. Can we make a pitcher that maybe is underperforming or a fringy guy in terms of stuff, but we give him the, uh, the greatest advantage possible in count base trends, right? Where you say, hey, 2-0, 
he's still a coin flip guy. We don't know what's coming. Because the hardest pitch to hit in baseball is the pitch you don't know what's coming. Well, that's great advice. And, and so it, let, me, let me turn the question around for you as well here. What's something that you pay attention to during the game? It may be something like that, but just what are some things that you try and notice as the game's going along? I think it depends upon the, the side of the game that we're you know, focused on. Um, in the minor leagues, we tend we have fewer coaches. And so, you know, I cover advanced scout report. I do catching. I did outfield. I do infield positioning. Um, I help with advanced scouting on the hitting side. I mean, you have these really deep dynamics where uh, it's kind of like being a small business owner, right? You got to be the janitor and the CEO. And in the minor leagues, you have to work through a lot of those things. So, you know, we try to do as much ahead of time as possible. But one of the things I encourage player, like I try to focus on is, is not getting too deep involved in the game in the minor leagues because I want the player to have to do it themselves. They learn best when they are out there having a battle. And if they ask a question, that's different. But like letting them sort things out themselves and figure things out because we aren't in the space of having to win games. Like Chris is in a space of like, we need to win and we need to win now, right? We need to win every inning going forward and we've got to make sure we do that. For us, we're, we're in still, in a lot of ways, development, right? We're still helping this guy because this guy is not in the major leagues for a reason. So what do we do to help him get there? We give him the tools. We help him in certain spaces. I try to empower the people around us to, to say, hey, what are you noticing? So like the guys that work in the video room that are keeping an eye on the track, man, they might see that a guy's spin axis is kicked down and we're losing some carry on his fastball. And so when he throws that fastball, it normally plays above average, even though he's got average velocity it might play an average and we might be able to give them a heads up. Um, it may be something we've been working on in our prep work. Um, as he starts to fatigue, we might see that spin axis come down. Guys get late, army comes late, a little more forearm fly out, runs into trouble there. Um, we might look at like count-based trends. We try to keep relatively detailed notes of just looking at what's going on throughout the game. Are we falling into patterns? Are we tipping something? Is the other team watching what our catcher is doing? In terms of the way that he's setting up, you know, does he set up on breaking balls with one knee down and he doesn't on fastball um, or he sets up with the other knee down? What are the things that are going on with that dynamic? Um, similar things like Chris was describing, you know, we might look at base runners, we might look at who's going, who's not. When are they looking to go? Are the counts when this guy decides to go? Because we, in a lot of ways, are working also as advanced scouts for the major league team. And so the information that we can start to document and put together in preparation, both so that our major league team knows what our players are doing and what they're doing well, but also looking ahead, Hey, this guy we're playing could easily end up in the big leagues and playing our major league team. And so we work on both sides of that as well. There's nothing I would say that I really hone in on. I try to stay observant of the game um, and stay diversified, but I think that's, you know, part of coaching in the minor leagues. Man, I really appreciate the depth of answers that you guys are giving because it's like, I'm going to need to go to listen to this two or three times just to make sure that I'm, <laughs> that I'm fully understanding like, the depth that you guys are dropping. So I appreciate that. And Oh, come and, hang out in uh, Reno, dude. You'll never yeah. get out of there. I'm going to have to. Like, <laughs> I will, for sure. Oh, the, uh, we got whiteboards. And, and, yeah, we've, oh, we've I, taken I, full I, advantage I, of the whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> We're really good doodlers, you know. Well, him, so not so much me, but yeah. <laughs> oh, there's lines, vertical approach yeah, angle. Yeah. Like, what does it all mean? That's <laughs> great. No, I love that. That's great. But, but, you know, I told you guys – a little over an hour. And so we're, we're are approaching the lightning section. So this is just a little bit of, of get to know you get to know, you know, how, how you learn, how you think, and just some different things that, that you guys are really enjoying, especially in the time that we're at now with so many coaches that are 
that are not able to get out on a field. And, and I know it's driving us all crazy. But Chris, let's go back to you. What is something that you've learned lately that's gotten you really excited? And I, I know that we've gotten we've gotten the opportunity to spend a couple of months really digging deep into, into some different stuff. And so uh, what are some different things that, that you're really excited about lately? Yeah, so our our internal website, internal system has gotten like a complete makeover from what it was last year. We've created our own internal scouting site that I've had a chance to really kind of dive into. Whereas during the season, it would have been a little bit more difficult just because you have so many other things going on to really kind of take a dive and, and just understand, you know, the ins and outs of the system. Something that I think is really cool that I actually had a part in creating was, you know, we all know about true media and that being a scouting platform that we all use for video, you know, and, and stuff like that. And we've created our own called blue media. We call it blue media kind of playing off the name there, but you know, it's something that, that is not, I guess it's, it's not copying, but it's, you know, it has certain aspects that we all liked from, Bats, which not were not very many for me personally, because I felt like Bats was created. And for those of us that don't know Bats, Bats is also another uh, scouting platform that we use, a video platform um, that all uh, 30 major league teams use. You know, True Media is the newest one of those platforms, which is great for me in my case. Basically, it gives me so many more options to look at as opposed to Bats. I, I kind of refer to Bats as like when the cavemen took the square stone and chiseled it around and made it round. Like that's when bats was also created the same time frame. So true media is light years above that, but we are running on DOS. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like dial up, you know, so it sucks because you know, you can't use it away from the ballpark. You have to have it on like bats is on an internal system, like a stored memory unit and you know to travel with it it's it's great for in-game stuff don't get me wrong that's why i love it because that stuff to be able to have your video like that and have the clip cut and put in there so a player can go from the field to the you know video room downstairs at the in the dugout or you know in the clubhouse or wherever maybe you know and see his at bat or see those pitches like in real time that's what bass is awesome for but basically that's the only thing so uh in my opinion personal opinion but i've really had a chance to kind of dive into our own internal site and just see the inner workings of it and see how cool and how user-friendly and useful it really is, which is, has been pretty cool. Mike coming at you, what's something lately that you've learned that's gotten you excited? I think that the two, two big things continue to grow my Spanish, right. And understand how to communicate with our Spanish speaking players. And that doesn't mean that I have to be fluent in it. Right. Although I'm working toward that. Right. But it's, it's, Again, we keep coming back to that word empathy, but it's showing that you're trying, right? It's creating deeper connections. And what I found is the more that I try to use it, I'm better at it than I thought I was. The players are more understanding and wanting to help you than you might think. And it's, it creates this deeper human element that, that exists between us. And so getting the opportunity to utilize that Spanish and start to create communication and dialogue with our Spanish-speaking coaches or Spanish-speaking players. And then even the Spanish-speaking between um, um, English-speaking coaches, right, as their primary language, because now we're seeing where our holes are at and we, we create this connection of, hey, we're all growing together. And it takes a ton of humility. And then I think growing the, the emotional intelligence that I approach players with is, I think it's a lifelong thing that we need to work on. I think we should be doing our, to- our whole lives, uh, not just in baseball, but, um, in the world around us, but 
when I look at um, the connections I've been able to make with the players over this time, right, we're all in this together. We're facing this common enemy, um, this common challenge, and we're able to, to bring these bonds together that create a level of desire to understand, like, hey, how are you doing? Like, what's going on with your family? Like, no, 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 I don't care about your throwing program yet. Like, what's going on with you? Like, where are you at as a person? Like, and, and then at, finding out they're asking me questions. Like, Mac, how you been? Like, how are things going? Instead of this being like this coach player, like, you know, where, how's your throwing program? Are you weightlifting? Are you getting your running in? Like, or, or, or. it's like, no, we, we are in this like peer-to-peer relationship that is, is truly authentic and empowers them to be in control of their career and their life. Um, not just on the field, but like, hey, how are your kids doing, right? I mean, one of the first things I got was a player had his baby and, and within 12 hours, he's calling me, he's like, dude, oh my gosh, right? This is amazing. And he's excited about it. And this guy's not, he's only like two or three years younger than I am, right? It's, a, it's an amazing blessing. So above all else, the relationships that we build um, and the way that we build those, it goes far beyond anything that we can learn on a data standpoint, anything we can pick up from video. This requires the human spirit, the human element. It's uh, really enjoyable. So. I really like that. What, what are you using for Spanish? Um, so we have a, a teacher that um, is employed by the twins. And so he does that. And then things like Pimsleur and SoundCloud, um, different podcasts that add on top of it, different books. And then just frankly, a lot of Google Translate. And, and I should say, most importantly, other the Spanish speaking coaches and players. Like they are your best resource because how we say it on Google Translate is not how they're going to say it. Um, I still remember I was trying to teach English to one of our Spanish speaking players when I was still playing. And he was from, um, he was actually from Haiti, like the Haitian side of the island of Hispaniola, but which is looked down upon. And uh, I, I bought a book and I'm like going through it. It's got, you know, 10 sentences, 10 words in the, the uh, word bank. And I asked him, I said, you know, Hey, let's go through these. And as we're going through, it's like Pescado. And he has, he's like, he started getting mad. He said, no, no. And he started yelling. I said, what in the heck? It's just 10 words in 10 sentences. Like it's not that hard, but he didn't know half the words that were in that word bank, even though they were already in Spanish because they don't use them. And so, you know, different dialects, different places that you're from. And so the Spanish is the coaches and the players are your best resource by a long shot. That's fantastic. I love that. And something I've been digging into lately, Pimsleur has been really good. Uh, I've actually yeah. really liked that quite a bit. So the next question, I'm, I'm stay, Mike, I'm going to stay with you. Uh, the best coaches that you've been around, what set them apart? Yeah, my college coach in, in uh, Calista Bakersfield, Bill Kernan, and he, he was a guy that pulled the best out of you, right? He challenged you, he pushed you, and he understood that stress is where things, you know, that's, uh, stress is where things grow, right? Our muscles grow, our bones grow, right? Like you need that heat. The, the strongest and most beautiful things in this world are created under extreme heat, right? And uh, extreme pressure. And he was somebody that did that. He challenged us to be our very best. He never allowed us to settle. And he was willing to ruin a relationship with you if it, if it meant he was going to take a chance on making you better, right? As a person, not just a player. And so um, he wasn't in it because he wanted to be a kind person. He wanted to be a good person. And I've really carried that with me my entire career that I'm going to go to bat for the right thing. I'm going to do that, you know, pick and choose my battles, but I want to make sure I go to bat for what's right. I'm not going to be there to always be kind to the guy or to the person throughout my life. I want to do the right thing. And Bill definitely brought that out in us. 
Love that. Chris, what do you got? I mean, I, honestly, I could probably name like 50. One, one that really comes to mind who I, I really connected with and I always very much just appreciated his like articulate thought process and pushing me to kind of get out of my comfort zone was James Rousen, former big league hitting coach with the Twins, is now the offensive coordinator um, <laughs> with the Miami, Miami Marlins. And it's funny because we had these conversations in 2017 I look at 2017, which was my first year with the Twins, uh, as one of the greatest years of my career. Now, I came off the year in 16. I was in the World Series with the Cleveland Indians. And obviously, that is a very, very high pinnacle of things to beat in terms of teams and seasons and, and all that stuff. But, you know, j did such a – like just an incredible job of getting buy-in from – literally every player on the team. We all, I, you know, it wasn't any one person, but we all as a group, as a staff, and as a, and as a you know, players, we took the first 100-loss team ever in the history of baseball and made it to the playoffs the next year. So no team ever in baseball history has ever lost 100 games and then went to the playoffs the next year, except for the 2017 Minnesota Twins. And I think, you know, J-Row was a really, really, like, extremely integral part of that. I mean, as were all of the other coaches on that staff, you know, he is one who just, who, you know, Mike talked about constantly getting the best out of you. He had a way of communicating that he dumbing things down and he was not afraid to try new things, but to have you understand trying new things all the time is something that's really difficult to, to get across as a coach, but even to understand as a player, you know, and he just had that ability about him to, to be able to connect with guys and to, to somehow get the best out of them. And, you know, one of the other ones, uh, you know, that definitely comes to mind is Terry Francona. I mean, I, I just think that, you know, there's not a coincidence that he's one of the better managers in our game as we speak, you know, he's done what he's done kind of transcending the game the last few years and how he, he has the open door policy. You know, that's something that I've seen a lot more. Dave Roberts does a lot of that, which is outstanding. But, you know, Tito would legitimately get pissed off at you if you walked by his door and didn't either poke your head in to talk crap to him or, you know, play uh, cribbage with him. But just to say hello, like he would chew your ass out um, and be very sincere about it. But you knew he had your back. I mean, it's just he's one of those guys. He's a player's manager. And, you know, we've heard that a ton in the past, but he really, really genuinely cares about his guys and he's so smart and it just seems like he's always one step ahead of the game, you know, in regards to the, the chess game that we play on a daily basis. But those two, those two, I think are, you know, some of the two that at least come to my mind right away. Like I, like I said, I could name, you know, Paul Molitor, I respect an absolute ton just because he got me as a player, which is really crazy coming from a Hall of Famer. And, you know, a slap dick backup catcher. But, but you know, you, you wouldn't think that those two, you know, would, would get each other. But, you know, Molly, Molly, I think, really appreciated what I brought to the table. And, you know, I always really much respected him for that. And I respected his, you know, his knowledge for the game. He saw things that nobody sees, you know. And it, that, those are the things that I, I, I geek out on. Like, guys that, like, see things before they happen. Or, like, he'll say, like, hey, watch this. This is going to happen right now. And then it does, and you're like, like what? Like, how did you know that was going to happen? You know, but a lot of guys like that just they have that innate ability to kind of, you know, to to feel the the heartbeat of the game before it really happens. 
Well, that's great. So uh, my next question is something that, that we can steal from you and we can add next week if we had practice. So let's say that, that you're in charge of running tomorrow's practice uh, or training session and you know that you've got this thing right here that's going to be a hit. Like you know that the players are going to love it. They've either told you that. What would that be? Pitcher's BP. <laughs> all my American League teams, man. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Mike, what do you got? I'm, you can't say pitcher's VP. We've already I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I was about to say. Yeah, That's so why I did it at first. <laughs> we, uh, I think uh, one of the big things is competition, right? Like, once you guys compete, have fun. And it doesn't have to, you know, like, whether it's dress-up days or it's, you know, wear what you want. I mean, obviously, Dodgers are big on this. We're big on this. Like, we're not here to regulate. We're not here to like tell you whether you had enough black on your cleats, like are your pants high enough and there's, you know, did you shave properly? Like most importantly, like, Hey, who can have the most fun today? And I think things like that, where we have those dress up moments where we say like, Hey, who's got the craziest stuff that we're going to throw out there. Um, that's what I would focus on is, is bring those guys together through laughter and joy. Or pitchers BP, you know, yeah. or pitchers BP. We'll that is laughter and joy. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe showing up the hitters. No, yeah, it could be. There are plenty of those guys that do. <laughs> Shoot. That's good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Mike, we're sticking with you. Uh, favorite books and resources that you want to share with our coaching community? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, where do we start? I mean, you know, the, the baseball side of this is crucial, right? And we want to learn those things. Um, you know, so books like Smart Baseball, MVP, uh, or MVP Machine, excuse me. Those are, I think those are wonderful, but most importantly, I, I try to, I try to enrich my mind through people that think outside of baseball and outside of sports. Um, and so when you look at somebody like Admiral McRaven, um, and make your bed, see stories like the books that he's written are absolutely phenomenal. These guys, you know, Jocko, as we've talked about far too much on the podcast, probably, you know, there's elements of this that or they could run deeper into the human spirit, right? And they, they run in the infrastructure of who you are and they're very visceral you know, X ISO and miss rates and vertical approach angles, like those aren't visceral, right? But if we can tap into the person, if we can tap into who they are in their heart and their mind and their gut, we really can capture something unique. And so I would, I just encourage people to really dive into that space of how do I enrich myself as a, a diverse being that creates greater perspective, empathy in the world um, and understanding. And then I think, you know, volunteerism and service to others, right? Like I've, I help run nonprofit baseball miracles. And, and I think with groups like that, like going out and serving your community, go out and serve together, go out and, and go to a, you know, a soup kitchen together, a food bank, go pick up trash together, like find things that draw you deeper. And, um, you know, the twins over the years have done a lot of stuff in the Dominican and Puerto Rico go. Yeah. Go do something that is so far outside your normal perspective and bandwidth that it, it shocks your system a little bit and you're forced to have that little bit of survival. Um, and I think, you know, I, I really like uh, Dan Crenshaw's book, Fortitude, um, that I was reading about, uh, or I've been reading, and, uh, you know, his talk about what he did in the Navy SEALs and how, hard, how important it is to suck. Like, go suck and get your butt kicked and struggle through it, labor through it, and then you'll come out on the other end much better. So, Yeah, I mean, you, you crushed it again on that. Like, from the the servitude standpoint to the wanting to better yourself. You know, I've actually been, I've been going through a little thing with my oldest son who's eight years old about, you know, being accountable. That's something that, 
I take is something that's kind of interwoven in the fabric of me that my father, you know, kind of instilled in me is, is having those values and, and, you know, using those on a daily basis and, you know, whether it's doing the right thing, you know, not doing the right thing because that's what you think somebody else wants to see, but doing the right thing because that's what you know in your heart. And I've tried to live, you know, every day of my life by that. And, you know, it's fun now getting to try to instill those things in my two sons because, you know, I, I had to, you know, tell my son yesterday, we were in the backyard sweeping and, you know, he just goes through it real quick. He's like, okay, dad, what's next? And I looked at it and like, I never intended this for my dad to, to come out in me in this particular situation. But, you know, I, I look at it and it's just, it's a disaster, right? Like he just did it literally as fast as he could and was like, all right, dude, let's go play something now. And I said, all right, do it again. And he's like, why? You know, and I kind of explained to him, like, you didn't do a very good job. Okay. So he goes and does it again. And again, it was just not a very good job. He got a little bit more, but he didn't take his time. And I said, listen, bud, you know, this is one thing that grandpa told me a lot when I was a kid that you, you know, if you take pride in what you do and you do it right the first time, you won't have to do it again. And if you would have done this right the first time, you know, we could have been playing baseball already or jumping on the trampoline or, you know, whatever, whatever it was that he wanted to do. But, you know, just trying to constantly instill those values in myself and in my, my sons and, you know, my daughter when she gets of age too, but, you know, really trying to just, I try to serve them in that way, you know, and, and I try to just be who I am, who I am is what I am. And, I try very hard not to change who I am because of who I'm around. You know, I think sometimes you may have a tendency to do it unknowingly, but you know, I think the more we can kind of stay in our own space and just really understand who we are like through and through, you know, the better off, you know, we're going to be outwardly as a person and a human being in the community, but to your family as well. I love that. And, and guys, I'm just going to open up the mic for you. Uh, Number one, let me just say thank you so much for joining us today. I, I had a blast. And, and again, I'm going to have to go back and, and re-listen to all of this because my, my brain is fried at the moment just from all the knowledge bombs that you were dropping. Seriously, this was super good. But Chris, we'll, we'll stick with you. Open mic and I'm going to mute myself. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners or, to, or, or just talk to them about before we go? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think we're all ready for baseball to start first and foremost, coaches included. You know, this is something that, you know, I know for myself personally has been extremely difficult uh, from the fact that, you know, not only do I not have the one thing that I've had since I was a little kid to do, um, and then I truly am like extremely passionate about, but, you know, just having to learn how to, how to kind of be half retired and really be like a dad, you know, I, I was kind of fun dad for a lot of the years because I was home for three months you know, we always had fun. Nobody ever got in trouble. Occasionally they did, but you know, like stuff like that. But I would encourage everybody to not only enjoy baseball coming back, but to really for the next, not too, you know, not too far away distance, just in the very near future to try to dive into your family. You know, I think that's one thing that's really come to the forefront throughout all of this stuff that we're going through right now. And, you know, a lot of this family time, my wife and I have been talking about our memories are being made here today. And you know, this past three months that my kids will remember for the rest of their lives. And it's funny to think about that. And you, you kind of start thinking back like, you know, wow, man, I, I can remember sitting at the table with my family having dinner with the radio playing or, 
you know, my dad playing catch with me and stuff like that. And just getting to do things with my kids, take them to the lake, something I've, I've never been home for 4th of July or like since high school. So, you know, it's been over 20 years since I've had the chance to experience this, but really, you know, trying to soak this time up with my family and, you know, hopefully it's not like this next year. Let's all really hope that because if it is, I think we're all in a really bad spot, but trying to take advantage of this kind of this, you know, not free year off, but kind of a year off from the madness that has controlled our lives and, and, you know, take that step into my family's life a little bit more and just kind of never know what will happen from it. I love it. Mike, what do you got for us? Yeah. I mean, Chris knocked out of the park as, as usual, you know, the vantage point of family and the opportunity to take a look at the world around us and, and truly seek to understand, but also to, to create those deeper um, ties, those deep rooted uh, relationships that are what make life so special right? That's what makes it so special for us. Baseball is just a medium that we build those relationships, that we grow the, the, um, like in the richness of our life and the way that we enrich others' lives, right? It's not just always about like how our lives are filled, but like our lives are oftentimes filled by the way that we serve others. And I think during this time, like, and, and going forward, I hope that, you know, just to pass along that the greatest thing that you can do for the world around you is to leave it better than you found it. Right. And that should be our ultimate goal. Like, is it how do we leave it better than we found it? Whether that's on a baseball field, whether it's in a classroom, uh, whether it's on a virtual classroom, uh, whether it's your podcast, whatever it is, like leave the world better than you found it. And it's something that I've, I've taken with me my entire life. And I try to make sure that each person I come across ends up in that space. So go serve, love the world around you and uh, to leave it better than you found it. And I got a question for you, actually. Turning the tables on. Oh gosh, here we go. John, I know you didn't know this was coming, did you? No, I know. What? <laughs> what is the? What is the the biggest takeaway that you've seen, uh, or common theme you've seen from the people that you've interviewed over the years, and how has it enriched your life? Common theme, uh, I think. You know, that's a really obviously a tough question to answer. And there's so many differences that I think that that's interesting. But I think the best ones have no ego. Like they've got no ego and they're player driven. Uh, you've used the word serve a ton and I love that. But it just seems like they're they're good dudes at heart and they have their players interest at, at the forefront. They're not trying to... They're not trying to gain a, an advantage to further their career, at least the ones that I've been around. I know there are some out there that, that have that, but I think the best ones have no ego because, number one, then you're putting your players first. Then you're understanding that you don't know all the answers, uh, and, and those things go just go hand-in-hand hand with each other of what makes the best coaches that, that I've gotten the chance to, to be around. And the ones that you mentioned have those as well, it seems like. so. But yeah, I would say that that's the, that's the biggest theme that I've seen, even though everybody goes about it a different way. Love that. I appreciate you, uh, you entertaining my question too. <laughs> of course, of course, anytime. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on. I know that I had a blast. I know that I learned a ton and, and I will link your contact in the show notes and, and we'll roll from there. Thanks, guys. Awesome. You're awesome. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.